Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you this week from not the West, but from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. On today's show, what's going on with the Colorado River? Water levels are dropping, and something has to give or it's going to run dry. But states aren't anywhere close to an agreement over who's going to cut back. Water scientist Brad Udall is here to explain what's going on, how dire the situation is, and what could happen next. But first, a little news. Colorado College released its annual Conservation in the West poll from the State of the Rockies project. If you are a regular listener over the last five, six years, uh, you know this is always one of the highlights of the year for us. We will do a whole episode with the pollsters, Lori Weigel and Dave Metz, coming up. But I wanted to flag a few of the most interesting numbers today especially to set up this conversation you're going to hear with Brad Udall. Colorado College has been sponsoring this poll for 13 years, so it's not just a snapshot in time anymore. It gives us a way to look back at how public opinion about conservation changes over time. And what's remarkable this year is that even as voters are more worried about the economy and inflation, their support for conservation and renewable energy is as strong or stronger than ever. Support for the 30 by 30 initiative, protecting 30% of America's lands and waters, has grown by 10% over the last few years. Now, four out of five Westerners want to see that happen. And perhaps not surprisingly, this year, voters are very concerned about dropping water levels. In four Colorado River states, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah, 86% of voters say the river is critical to their state's economy, 81% of them say protecting it requires urgent action. But, and this may be the most fascinating number to me in this year's entire poll, when Dave and Lori asked voters which sector of water users used the most water in their state, only a third of them correctly identified farmers and ranchers as the biggest users. Now, keep in mind, this is not something that is a close call. In every single Western state, agriculture uses 70 to 80, 85 percent of all the water. But in most of the states polled this year, voters thought that industry and business used the most water. Nevada voters got that one especially wrong. And that shows there is an information gap that policymakers are going to have to get over if we're going to get serious about using less water. All of the municipal uses, all of the industrial uses, Heck, all of the golf courses and lawns across the West, they cannot solve the fundamental problem, which is that we are taking more water out of the Colorado River every year than goes in, and the vast majority of that water goes to crops and livestock. We really want to get into what's going on with the Colorado River right now, so we're not going to dive too deep into the history of Colorado River water rights, but we should lay down a few facts before we get started. Here's the gist. The Colorado River Compact divided the Colorado River states into two basins, the upper basin, which contains Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, and the lower basin, which includes Arizona, California, and Nevada. The water in the river is supposed to be split equally between the two basins. Right now, the upper basin delivers 7.5 million acre feet per year to the lower basin before taking its allocation. The water in the upper basin is allocated by percentage among those states, while the lower basin uses hard numbers to split that 7.5 million acre feet. California receives 4.4 million acre feet per year. Arizona receives a little over half of that. Nevada gets just 300,000 acre feet. And the country of Mexico gets about 1.5 million acre feet. 
Finally, there are two major reservoirs that act as savings accounts for the two basins. That's Lake Powell for the upper and Lake Mead for the lower. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably knew a lot of that already, and you probably also know that both Lake Mead and Powell are drying up at a rapid rate right now. You may have also heard that all the states are trying to come up with a plan to stabilize the levels of both lakes before they literally go dry and stop producing hydropower. So now that we've covered that, let's bring in Western water expert Brad Udall. Brad is a senior water and climate research scientist at Colorado State University. Brad, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this issue today. My pleasure to be here. Important topic. Awesome. So let's start with something really interesting that you actually told me over email before we started talking. It's that um, 7.5 million acre feet that I mentioned earlier that the upper basin um, delivers to the lower basin. Um, that's way more than what th- that's more than half of what the river is currently producing. So the difference it was coming out of Lake Powell, which is of course leading to the depletion of that reservoir. Um, and you told me over email that the Colorado C- River Compact doesn't actually require the upper basin to deliver that much water. It's sort of like a misreading um, of what actually happened in that meeting that the that uh, produced the Colorado River Compact. Can you? Explain that misunderstanding and what it means for us today. Sure. So the river is managed by a series of compacts and Supreme Court decrees and federal law, international treaties. The heart of it is this 1922 Colorado River Compact. And the heart of the compact is Article 3, which has five different sections that allocate the river. And for years, people thought that Article 3D says something that it actually does not say. So legal scholars and others have said it obligates the upper basin to deliver 75 million acre feet every 10 running years. It doesn't say that, though. It says the upper basin shall not cause the flow at the dividing point between the upper and lower basin to fall below 75 million acre feet. Note the difference. One is a positive obligation, shall deliver, and that's what experts have said for years. And that's contrasted with what's actually in the compact, will not cause the flow to fall below. It's easy to see how that occurred, how that misconception occurred. Under normal drought or human consumptive uses, that compact clause is, in fact, a positive obligation. But under something that no one ever thought would occur, that is to say permanently reduced flows under climate change, you got to go back to the original language of the compact. And the upper basin states are now making the case, and I wholeheartedly support this, that they're not the cause of these flow declines. And it looks like within the next several years, we're actually going to violate that 75 million acre foot obligation as it has been framed historically, but that's wrong. And this is one of many aspects of the compact and and the overall law of the river that are frankly unclear and are being discussed, discussed by all major players right now. We're literally rewriting Western water law as we talk. Because flaws that were written in unintentionally a hundred years ago are suddenly coming into play now because at the time they didn't envision this current mega drought or aridification as you've put it. Yeah. Amongst other causes. Um, I mean, I, I would argue they were frankly a little sloppy. Um, 
the the document's all of four pages. It took mm-hmm. them the better part of a year to negotiate in what I think were about 20 different meetings. They ended up signing it in Santa Fe right around Thanksgiving in 1922. They were hurried along, believe it or not, by a Supreme Court ruling earlier that year that scared the upper basin to death. And that Supreme Court ruling basically said that first in time, first in right, which is the basis of in-state water law across the Western USA, that first in time, first in right was actually going to be applied between states. They had never decided that. There's a case between Wyoming and Colorado. And the upper basin knew that if that were the case, they were going to lose because the, the lower basin would clearly develop sooner, and, and including especially California. And so that that ruling came out in June, and it really forced the hand of the upper basin. And uh, it's, I mean, there, there's just a lot of parts about the compact that are completely unclear, I would argue. So fast forward 100 years, and we have these negotiations going on today under at least some sort of threat from the Interior Department, the Bureau of Reclamation, to step in if the states don't agree on something. Just bring us up to speed. We're recording this on February 10th, and so things can change between now and and the time folks are listening to this. But walk us through the state of the negotiations right now and why there still isn't an agreement. So let's back up just a little bit to 2007. Sure. 2005, uh, Interior did something very similar. The reservoirs had lost half their contents. There were no plans for how to deal with shortages, that is to say, reductions in deliveries. And Interior told the states, either you come up with a plan or we will. And two and a half years later, in 2007, they had a plan that we call the interim guidelines. That's been adjusted in 2019, so 12 years after that, because the original plan wasn't good enough. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves now, uh, after a really serious serious set of bad years from 2018, finding out that those two agreements aren't good enough. So uh, mid last year, Interior said we needed to come up with two to four million acre feet in cuts. Um, That's huge. That's, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the river flow, depending on which numbers you actually use, 20th century average or the 20 percent decline we now have. And so there's been a mad scramble since Interior announced in June of last year that we needed two to four million acre feet in cuts. Um, They said late last year that they wanted to do a special environmental impact statement to adjust the 2007 agreement and Uh, This new special agreement would last through 2026, so very short term, because the 2007 agreement actually expires in 2026. The federal government asked the states to come up with a collaborative solution that they could model as part of the work for the special environmental impact statement that's due to be put in place by August of this year, which is unbelievable fast timing. Um, And as you might imagine, um, there were serious disagreements about how you cut that much water. And you have right now a proposal from the six states uh, that do not include California. And you have a California proposal that looks very, very different. So that's where we stand right now. I suspect Interior, as part of their uh, SEIS work, will model both of those. 
They'll also model probably their own proposal. They'll model a no action alternative. And it's going to be a really fast 2023 to figure out where we're headed. So how far apart are these two sides? California on one side, the other six states on the other. Um, is is this just arguing over the details or is there a fundamental gap between what they're proposing? They're really far apart. Um, I mean, arguably, both groups have come up with very large cuts. The question is who gets whacked? And California for years has labored under the idea that they're the senior water user on the river. And as you might imagine, that influences their proposal, which says, hey, everybody else gets whacked and we don't actually take too much of a penalty. Other, The other state's proposal actually puts a large proportion of the reductions on California. And how this plays out is anyone's guess. Um, a, a critical component of this is how we deal with what are called evaporation and system losses. For years in the lower basin, uh, these they, there's about a, God, how big is it? Well, 20% of the water that gets released out of uh, Hoover that flows to the lower basin disappears. It either evaporates, gets used by local plants. Um, it, it just doesn't make it to where it needs to go. And no one, it's been a slush fund. No one has actually paid for that. And we're now at the point where we need to figure out who pays for that water. If you allocate that water by water use and by distance traveled, which is to say, you know, the, the longer water flows, the bigger the loss, um, California should take a really big hit. Um, and yet they say that they're not responsible for that. So, mm -hmm. That's a little bit of a brief overview of where we are. Wow. That's a, sounds like an intractable issue there. <laughs> yes. um, so uh, I'm sure we could talk about these negotiations a lot more because they are very complicated. Um, but let's move on to what the water is actually being used for in the Colorado River Basin. Where does the majority of the water end up? Like in what types of um, uses and um, what, are the obvious cuts that uh, in terms of, of, of what the water is actually being used for, what, what gets cut first? So somewhere between 70 and 80% of the water goes to agriculture, about 10% of these losses, the remainder's municipal use. Um, so if you've got agriculture using 80% of the water, you know, as a starting point, they probably should have 80% of the cuts. The problem is the ag users in the basin are typically the senior users. They were the ones that were there first. And therein lies a really difficult part of this problem because, you know, you have major economies in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and Phoenix and Tucson that use 10% of the water. And then you have 80% that goes to a very small in dollar amount uh, ag returns. Um, and there are real equities to consider here, on, frankly, on both sides. But because ag's 80% of the use, at least I say, you know, they need to be 80% of the solution. So it sounds like this does on some level just boil down to there's no way to get to the savings we need at the municipal level, even if you dried up the central Arizona project and stopped delivering water to Phoenix and Scottsdale and Tucson, you're still a, 
a literal drop in the bucket. Is that is that a fair assessment? Okay, that's right. Absolutely. Denver, too. I mean, Denver gets half of its water out of the Colorado River Basin. So that means we're does this we're so does this mean this boils down to we are going to have to fallow millions of acres of cropland across the West in California and we're just fighting over what dries up? I think you're going to see some fouling for sure. You're probably going to see, and it may be seasonal fouling, right? Mm. So the really interesting agricultural part of this occurs in what's called the Imperial Irrigation District, the Imperial Valley, right on the border with California and Mexico, and also just across the river in Yuma in Arizona. That ag is really valuable, especially the winter produce, only the winter produce, frankly. Uh, In the summertime, they continue to grow crops, but it's really hot. They use a lot of water and there's an opportunity there for some seasonal fouling that I think you'll, you'll see happen. Those water rights are some of the most senior on the river and therein lies part of the problem. They don't want to give up that water. And I suppose I don't blame them. And according to the law right now, they don't have to. They wouldn't have to. No. I mean, Imperial is senior to Metropolitan Water District, the huge wholesaler in Southern California that provides water for 20 million people. And in theory, if there's not enough water, Metropolitan gets completely cut off and Imperial can continue to grow just as they've done before using the same amount of water. That can't work in the 21st century. And that's part of the problem here, where we have a water law that came out of miners and original growers. And if you had two miners and you didn't have enough water, the guy who was last made complete Mm -hmm. sense. You don't get any, the first guy gets everything. Same thing with early agriculture. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in a modern economy where you just say, hey, Phoenix, you don't get any water. You've got your water. You're you're junior to all these growers. Good luck finding some more. People get zip. Can't work. So how much of the agriculture comes down to alfalfa and then how much of that alfalfa is actually going to yeah. feed cows and livestock in the US and how much of that is leaving the country so so great question you know alfalfa just is a first order approximation is about half of the water use in the base and most wow. people don't appreciate that alfalfa and other forages Humans don't eat alfalfa directly, but we do eat yogurt and ice cream. Um, we eat beef. All that takes alfalfa. Alfalfa is a really valuable crop um, for, for those purposes. But, you know, in places in the lower basin, they put 10 feet of water on top of a field every year to get maybe 10 different cuttings of alfalfa. Alfalfa grows kind of like a grass mm-hmm. and you, you can just keep cutting it. That probably needs to change. Some of this alfalfa is actually being exported. Um, so uh, it probably means more higher prices, probably may mean less yogurt and ice cream and beef. Um, although you can grow alfalfa in a lot of different places, not just in the Colorado River Basin. It is grown. It's grown everywhere in the American West and a little bit in the East, too. So this is 2023, a farm bill year in Congress. It comes up every five years. It tends to be a big bipartisan bill. It is a haul getting it there, but it's one of the most consequential bills that Congress passes. Is there any talk of addressing the Colorado River crisis with the farm bill in some way because there are so many subsidies 
and crop insurance and all these other things that go into shaping the American agricultural system? There should be a discussion. I can't tell you if there is a discussion. I'm not a party to that, but there absolutely should be a discussion. The Farm Bill is a really important tool and and we should use it. Um, you know, as, as you're probably aware, there are large amounts of money from two bills passed last year for the Colorado River Basin, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act. Both have pretty good chunks of money, like on the order of something less than 10 billion total for Colorado River problems. Problem is, this is a $150 billion kind of problem. It's mm. not a $10 billion kind of problem. So the, the amount of money is would, would end up being a, a massive, massive chunk of what the farm bill usually is in terms of size. Yeah. I mean, I listen, the ag community is really sensitive to discussions about alfalfa and they kind of call it crop shaming. I've heard that term used recently. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to be told what to grow. And I sort of understand that. I also sort of want to say, Hey, we've got to cut back somewhere. These crops really use a lot of water, especially in the summer. Um, and if it and if it's not going to American cows, we are effectively exporting the Colorado River. Yeah, no, that's a really big problem, and I don't know to what extent Colorado River water is going to to mm-hmm. foreign cows. I will tell you, in Arizona, lots of other water, is yeah, for lots sure. of groundwater right out yeah, there. Lots the of groundwater. Yeah. yeah. So let's um, pick back up with these negotiations that we were talking about earlier. Um, I live in Utah, which is an upper basin state, and it's my understanding that we don't use um, all of our allocation at this point and therefore are very, very uh, reticent to give up anything in these negotiations. Can you explain sort of the politics between the upper and the lower basin and why it seems like the lower basin will be taking the majority of these cuts? Yeah. So, so as you mentioned in the lead in, uh, the compact split the basin, upper basin, lower basin, four states in the upper, three in the lower, gave each basin an equal allocation, seven and a half million acre feet of water. Uh, turns out the upper basin's never grown into its allocation. They only used about four and a half. The lower basin now is using its full seven and a half plus all these system losses that occur. So more like nine plus Mexico's use on top of that. So there's an inequity now that's developed. And the upper basin for years maintained that they had the right to grow into this water. And by gosh, they were going to do it. And even in your state, Kate, you know, there's a whole entity there designed to figure out how to utilize that unused allocation. The problem is climate change. The flows are now down 20% relative to the 20th century average. They were 15 million acre feet on average. They're now around 12 in rough numbers. And the best science, of which I've done some, tells us these flows are going to continue to go down. So the upper basin, I would argue, is kind of in a grieving process about this unused allocation that they always thought they had and that they were going to grow into. It doesn't exist. The lower basin, you know, has has utilized their full share, plus until recently, even more, even some of the unused upper basin allocation, which now isn't there because of climate change. But there's a gross inequity in overall use. And that also causes some of the the, the problems here in, in coming up with solutions because the upper basin doesn't really have that much water to cut, frankly. 
And the lower basin um, is where the problem is for the most part. That said, everybody's going to get to contribute to this solution. I don't care where you are, upper basin, lower basin, municipality, agricultural users, everyone's got to contribute. So let me follow up there. We, we talked about senior water rights and this notion that the farmers were the first there. And that, of course, is not true. The first water users yeah. were the indigenous nations that have been there since time immemorial. How do tribal water rights fit into both the allocation under the uh, under the, the original compact and possible solutions here going forward? So, so yeah, to add another very difficult problem to the mix. So the original compact didn't even talk about the Indians. So it has one line in there about the Indians. In 1908, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled famously that if you created an Indian reservation, there was an implicit water right in the amount of water needed to fulfill the purposes of that reservation. And often we thought Indians were going to become farmers, that Native Americans were going to become farmers. So there's an implicit federal right to farm this land with a water from the Colorado River. Um, there are 30 tribes in the basin. There's still 12 outstanding water rights claims. Some of them pretty big. The Indians actually control 20% of the water in the basin right now, but there's still 12 more to come. And it's possible to think that that number, that 20% goes to 30%. The problem is to find new water for uh, unresolved Indian water rights claims means you get to take yet even more water from existing users. So that that's yet one more problem we've created for ourselves. And and it's a devilishly difficult problem. Now, does is there also potentially a solution in there if the nations get their water rights that they are owed under the law? Could they then sell those sell that water off and create a market solution for some of this? Yes, absolutely, and that's actually ongoing uh, already. Um, the Gila River Indian community has uh, graciously stepped up and agreed to sell some of their water to help solve some of these problems on a temporary basis. Colorado River Indian tribes have also done the same. Uh, to where tribes are willing to voluntarily exchange water for cash, that's a great solution. Some of them probably don't want to do that, and sure. I think we need to respect that. But anytime you get a, a, a place where people will take money in exchange for water, that's something we should do. And then let's just keep going all the way down the river. We mentioned at the top, Mexico is theoretically guaranteed some water as part of all this, but doesn't sound like they're getting any. Is there, what are the international implications here? So Mexico, for the most part, has been a pretty good player in all of this. So there's an original treaty in 1944 that gives them 1.5 million acre feet, 10% of the 20th century flow. Um, they agree, they've now agreed to take cutbacks in proportion to cutbacks that the U.S. imposes on our users. Um, and so I think we'll see them continue to uh, offer up water savings similar to what other users have done on a percentage basis. Um, and they've been pretty good about this, I would, I would say. In theory... Uh, according to legal scholars, that's the most senior water right on the river, that that water right gets fulfilled before any other Interesting. use. Interesting. Okay. 
Yeah. But but it sounds like that's not what's actually happening right now. Is that the case? Well, not the full amount of the right. I mean, they've contributed to um, what is termed extraordinary drought cutbacks. And, uh, and, and again, I'd argue they've been pretty good, but that's yet another complication in the mix. Hmm. So uh, selfishly asking another Utah question here. Uh, what is the point of Lake Powell at this point? I've talked to folks who, you know, say, let it go dry. We only need one reservoir. We don't have, we're, we have two reservoirs that are less than half full. Why don't we put all of that in one, which of course would be Lake Mead, um, and let Glen Canyon come back. Is that a viable, logical, like, move at this point? So in the longer term, maybe. So in the year 2000, the reservoirs were 95% full, roughly 50 million acre feet. We're down to 25% full. We've gone from 95 to 25. 70% of that storage, that 50 million acre feet, we've lost 35 million acre feet. We're at 15 between the two reservoirs. Um, you could you could put all the water in one if you wanted right now. Um, historically, the upper basin has always thought in part because of the way the compact divides the river that Lake Powell was their bank account and it helped them meet their compact flow obligation. And again, they're, in those silly times, people thought their flow obligation was this fixed number that we talked about before, this positive affirmative obligation. And it's not, it's a, it's a shall not cause the flow to fall below obligation. Um, there've been many in the environmental community that suggest that, What's under Lake Powell, Glen Canyon, is a natural beauty that we should allow to, to come back. And, you know, fascinating history here, right? Glen Canyon Dam was built because, in part, the Sierra Club objected strenuously to a dam in Dinosaur National Park monument at the time. And David Brower and others at the Sierra Club said, you will not build a dam in a national park. We did that once before, Hetch Hetchy in California. We're not doing it again. And Brower then signed on to a dam at Glen Canyon because it wasn't in a national park. What few people knew is that Glen Canyon should have been a national park. Mm -hmm. And my former boss, when I was a river guide, Ken Slight, used to run river trips in Glen Canyon. And he only converted his company to doing Grand Canyon river trips, which everybody thinks is a delightful place. But he only went into Grand Canyon when he had to, because Glen Canyon was such a beautiful place. And so I am completely sympathetic to people who want to restore Glen Canyon. There are real problems right now, though, with getting water through that dam it, as the river drops. And until we have some structural changes to Glen Canyon Dam, I think it's, it's dangerous to think that we could just take all the water out of, out of, uh, out of Lake Powell and return it to Glen Canyon. I, I think we're going to do a, a podcast book club next, and we'll start with the Monkey Wrench Gang and ask George Hayduke what, what he would do here. <laughs> uh, this is all rightfully bleak. And I don't want to discount any of the obviously very serious uh, problems and challenges that we've just outlined here. But Brad, is there any good news? Are there any good examples that you like to point to of water districts, municipal uses, uh, agriculture changes that are 
making a difference, moving the needle that could be applied more broadly to actually start cutting back on water use. Yeah. So, so you're right. It's not just bleak stuff, Aaron, although I do call myself the skunk in the room. And um, <laughs> so, you know, Los Angeles, or actually Las Vegas really has taken the lead in the American West in reducing water consumption. And they've paid millions of dollars out to rip out unnecessary grass and to pursue other conservation strategies. Um, Los Angeles Metropolitan has done the same thing more, more recently. Uh, in large places around the American West, places like Las Vegas, um, their water use is actually down over the last 30 plus years, despite doubling their population, which means their per capita rates have plummeted. Um, and this story is actually true in many places, Phoenix is as well. Um, most of these municipalities have conservation measures that do something like 1% per year in terms of reductions in water use. Doesn't sound like a lot, but compound that over 20 years, you have far more than even 20%. The first guess how big that would be. So cities arguably have done their part, recycling, um, ripping out unnecessary outdoor vegetation, making sure we protect trees, though, which are really, really important in all these Western cities because of the shade they produce. So th there are good stories there. Um, there are some stories in agriculture, some fouling cases, seasonal fouling. Um, there's some water use efficiency measures, although, <laughs> frankly, I'm I'm a little skeptical, having done a bunch of studies on water efficiency measures in ag, and generally to save water in ag, you need to fallow, unfortunately. Mm. Oftentimes, things that are portrayed as efficiency measurements, like sprinklers or drip, paradoxically lead to increased water use. It's, it's kind of interesting. interesting. Or, yeah. is it, or just changing crops? I mean, growing something that's not alfalfa, where we're growing alfalfa today? So, yeah. So real interest right now in what's called crop switching um, and trying to grow crops that have a good economic return, but use less water. We'll see where that goes. Um, one of the interesting things about crop switching that you need to keep in mind is that farmers oftentimes face really harsh market conditions, right? And they really want safety in what they grow. Alfalfa is this known crop. It's a good income producer. It rejuvenates their fields because it produces nitrogen. There's a lot of things to like about alfalfa. When you ask a farmer to switch a crop, you're asking them oftentimes to switch labor, to switch machinery, to shift markets, to shift agronomic knowledge, um, the shift processing, storage. I mean, you're asking them a to lot of upfront costs. completely change how they do. And it's risky. And so we need to figure out how to help them through this transition. Brad, I, I'm sure that you talk to a lot of policymakers and people in positions of power about the Colorado River. What do you say to them um, in terms of solutions or what, what they should be pushing for to solve this issue? Yeah, so, you know, the message I've had for the last 20 years has been maybe less on the solution side and more on the, hey, you guys need to take this science really seriously. Um, it's, it's really good. It's been peer reviewed. We got 23 years of data now. We know that we're losing 
uh, a bunch of water for every degree Celsius, somewhere between five to 10% of the flow per degree Celsius or two Fahrenheit rise in temperature. We think that continues, um, pay attention to this. So, I mean, the one, so I've really pushed the science side of it. My expertise is kind of more in the science and, and, and less on the solution side, but I, I think the science tells us that we need really flexible ways to allocate whatever water we have. And that, you know, much of what we think of as 20, 21st century water law needs to change. We really need to get at the root and develop, you know, a, a mechanism that's equitable and shares these shortages, contrary to what the old water law would tell us. Um, again, a lot of this is not exactly in my wheelhouse, but Crop switching certainly important. Municipal conservation important. Recycling important. Probably, I mean, I hate to say this, but we probably need to some permanent long-term reductions in demand too at some point in time. Or bar bearing that some super flexible demands that can come and go on the very end of the water allocation, the most junior rights, right, that can flex. On on in a good year, you get to grow yeah. more alfalfa this year. If it's a really bad year, there's going to be less alfalfa yeah, coming out of exactly. California and Arizona. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to take off your scientist hat for a moment and put on your political prognosticator hat from the other side of the family. And looking ahead to the next couple months, as something has to happen, something has to give. What do you think the odds are? There's an agreement here, or what do you, is are we? Do you think we're just looking at the Interior Department, the Bureau of Reclamation, having to step in and say, "Here's the plan for the next five years"? I think Interior has to step in. I don't think. The problem here is not that there aren't good people in California that want to do the right thing. I think the politics of water allocation in California are really tricky. Mm. And it's easier, it'll be easier for irrigation districts to have solutions imposed upon them that, than to have them agree to solutions that their local stakeholders think are truly awful, that they have voluntarily agreed to. Yeah. And that's unfortunately just the way the politics are working here. Um, I also think you end up with some lawsuits. I just don't think there's sure. any way around that. When there's that much money at stake, yep. there's no way this doesn't end up in the courts. Yeah. And this, frankly, it comes down to Imperial Irrigation District in California, who has, whose water rights about 20% of the flow of the whole river. Yeah. Super important player. But the internal politics in that district, I think it'd make it really hard for them to say, hey, we're willing to give up a whole bunch of water for the good of everybody. And I don't, I'm not trying to make them into bad players here. I just think their politics are super complicated. Everyone at the end of the day is looking out for themselves first, which is yeah. always yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brad, I have one more question for you. Um, I know you've, you're a scientist first and foremost. Are you working on any um, science related to the Colorado River right now? So the one thing that might be of interest to, listeners here is I and some other scientists, well-known scientists in the basin, Julie Vano, Jeff Lucas, Tanya Petock, that developed a website called coloradoriverscience.org. And on that are all the latest and greatest in science 
there's a whole bunch of policy stuff in there. There's water conservation stuff. I mean, it's a really extensive website based on the wiki model. And if you're, you know, if you want to get in the weeds, it's a good place to go. So that's one thing I would point to right now. We will awesome. put a link to that in the show notes right now. Absolutely. Well, Brad Udall, Senior Water and Climate Research Scientist at Colorado State University, thank you so much for joining us. This was a truly interesting and enlightening conversation. Kate and Aaron, thanks for having me. Today's good news comes out of Southern California, where a non-Native woman donated a one-acre property near Pasadena to the Tongva Nation last year after learning about the land back movement. That's just one example of Indigenous nations reclaiming land in 2022. The Oglala Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe bought 40 acres near the Wounded Knee National Historic Landmark for $500,000. The Rappahannock Tribe celebrated the return of more than 400 acres along the Rappahannock River in Virginia. And the Beaufort Band of Chippewa Tribe in Minnesota was able to purchase more than 28,000 acres of their original homeland with help from the Conservation Fund. For a full list of lands returned to Indigenous care in 2022, visit the Decolonial Atlas online. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. And that'll do it for this episode of The Landscape. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly learned a whole lot today. Uh, if you have ideas for guests we should talk to, please send us an email podcast at westernpriorities.org. Thanks again to Brad Udall for joining us today. I'm Kate Gretzinger. I'm Aaron Weiss, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.